Oh my goodness, everyone. It is episode 19 of The Score. What is 19? Like, we're college freshmen? College freshmen. Um, mm-hmm. Like the Adele album? Um, was that? <laughs> oh, was she 19? But well, that's the first that's one. That's the first one. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Chasing pavements. Chasing pavements. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> I mean, when I was 19, well, 9 11 happened, but <laughs> let's not go there. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure everyone else had a much. Anyway, how are you guys? I'm Rocky. <laughs> I'm, I'm, my name is Rocky. I'm the EDI director here at Minnesota Opera, and I'm here with my two illustrious co-hosts, Mr. Lee Bynum and Ms. Paige Reynolds. Hello. How are you both? Howdy. Hey, everybody. <laughs> so a lot has happened since last we uh, were in this room together. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. fun stuff. Halloween. Did you all do anything oh, for right. Halloween? Um, did you have costumes? Halloween happened. Nope. We no, did not. We did not do sure anything Halloween related. <laughs> <laughs> Except uh, eat candy. My partner is definitely the candy lover out of the two. And so was like, I'm not letting this holiday, this weekend pass by without <laughs> just eating a ridiculous amount of his favorite Reese's. Oh, so, wow, that's okay. a good one. Yeah, good yeah. One. I mean, at least it's like a quality candy. You know? really it's not like something I can judge person, him for. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, no, no shade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a weird um, Thanksgiving with no trick-or-treaters, though. So, you mean oh. Halloween. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thanksgiving Thanks coming Thanksgiving frequently has no up. trick-or-treaters. Um, <laughs> I think living in this neighborhood where there are not a lot of people with kids. It's mm-hmm. a lot of younger mm-hmm. single people. Mm-hmm. So this was the first Halloween I've had since maybe ever that I feel like I didn't interact with any trick-or-treaters. No mm-hmm. one, I, I guess you can't even get in the building, so there's mm-hmm. no one to ring the door. But I didn't like see any kids out and about. It was a little weird. And then I think I forgot that Halloween happened because I didn't didn't see it so yeah we all work for it yeah we definitely had like less trick-or-treaters than normal like we we ended up going to our neighbor's house and i'm really smart so what i did the day before (laughs) was i went and got my booster and my flu shot at the same time Uh and so i was just loopy and tired <laughs> and completely out of it. I was like sitting like sitting there at dinner and like one of our friends just like looked over the table and was like, are you here? <laughs> and I'm just like, what's going on? But we, got, we bought like a huge Costco size bag of candy thinking like we'll have all these trick-or-treaters and there were like three. And so mm-hmm. like now Dennis is working through a Costco bag. <laughs> 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 and I've been very good. I've been very proud of myself. So <laughs> it it takes a lot of uh, restraint. Yes, not to work your way through. Oh, who are you telling? Oh <laughs> <laughs> is this like a a continued pandemic? Like people are not taking their kids trick or treating. I wonder. That might be. It, it might be. Yeah. I mean, I think also in our neighborhood, we used to have a neighbor whose parents ran a mortuary, and so she had like a coffin and like all of this like mortuary stuff so she would like set it up on the lawn 
shout out to Lisa. (laughs) 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 And she, and like, she would invite all of her siblings over and they would like dress up in like grotesque outfits and then like create like this obstacle course for the children to go through, like spooky. Oh my gosh. (laughs) 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 And so kids from all over the place would come over. Um, would come to our neighborhood to like see like what they were doing that year but now like they've moved to Arizona so I guess the kids are like whatever (laughs) it's not the same anymore it's not the same anymore so wow and I was so curious about it because um Damien loves Halloween, and I'm kind oh. of neutral to it. Oh, we Scorpio didn't celebrate season. exactly. <laughs> it's just a couple of days before, we didn't celebrate Halloween growing up because my mom was a school principal and my dad was a child psychologist, and they didn't believe in kids being hyper, so they oh. didn't like let us have candy or caffeine Aww. ever. <laughs> so we never really did it. And then I moved to New York, and like everybody did Halloween, like it was mm-hmm. like a thing. Mm-hmm. So I got really excited about it for a while. And at least, you know, I was in the building, sitting on the balcony, kind of like looking out to see what was going on in the North Loop for Halloween. And, you know, people were just not. I think I saw Nary, a person in a costume. So. Wow. Yeah. Wow. That's kind of a bummer. A, a little bit, just when I was getting into it. So, I mean, I, I clearly forgot. I just called it Thanksgiving. So. <laughs> <laughs> Well, and I think it's also, like, tough here because it's like, you know, oh, I'm Spider-Man, but I'm also wearing, like, a puffer coat. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, over it. (laughs) That was always a concern growing up or any time I've dressed up is, like, how cold am I willing to be? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Can I work mm -hmm. warmth into this costume? Mm -hmm. Am I going to have to have this cool costume and then, like, this... Uh, a little dorky coat over it. Like, what? (laughs) You know, and especially as a grown-up, like, you know, as a gay grown-up, you know, I want to be, you know, slutty, slutty super You know, as Cardi B says, hoes don't get cold. Did you see? Did y'all see the TikTok, like, proving Cardi B's statement? No. (laughs) (laughs) It was actually a study. Like... Someone who, she appeared to be young or like, yeah, a researcher. Like, we tested this hypothesis. (laughs) Hypothesis. Does she indeed not get cold? And they, like, pretty much confirmed it. That, like, yeah, yeah. It has to do with being aware that, like, you look good or being aware of other people's perception of you. Kind of overriding what's going on internally and the feeling of coldness. So, science. <laughs> right? Okay, right? science. science. See, Cardi B, that's why she's so successful. It, exactly. One of the many reasons. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Delivering facts. <laughs> <laughs> well, in less fun news, what also happened. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> well, we did have an election, which. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what to even say about all of this. <laughs> you you know, every year, like literally every year since 1998, when I moved to New York, I've had a friend ask me, are you still registered to vote in Virginia? Because that's where they need your vote. And mm-hmm. it's like, no. <laughs> and people still will ask me. I'm like, mm-hmm. you know how long I've been gone, right? But this was the first year that I actually kind of felt like I, I wished that I were still registered to vote in Virginia. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. that... 
it's it's just we have been making such great progress and i felt like the virginia of my upbringing the the richmond of my upbringing was a place that didn't exist anymore and i got mm. such a reminder mm-hmm. that virginia is still virginia the south is still the south and mm-hmm. they are still doing the things that they're doing and that's that was a particular disappointment although the close call in jersey was also like a was weird wild like, but, <laughs> but this that's not what we're doing up here. So like, but then when you think about like, well, they did have Chris Christie for many, many, you many, know, like, many oh, years. So. Like Thanksgiving, I also blocked that out. <laughs> Did never forget him alone on that beach. <laughs> no, but I feel you with the Virginia thing, and I've had people actually, and I've had the same conversation with people. Um, I remember my best friend um, before the 2016 election like calling me up and yelling at me because I had switched. (laughs) And he was like, what are you doing? (laughs) Why are you doing that? (laughs) We need you. (laughs) But, you know, and people have tried to like explain it away. Like, well, you know, like so frequently, like, you know, like, you know, there's the one term one term limit for governorships in in Virginia and it tends to flip flop between the parties and I'm like that's that's not what this is about but thank you that's not what this is about this is you know your children are going to have to read Beloved isn't that scary and people actually like falling for that (laughs) you know and it just I just think about just like a year ago and I feel like we've talked about this before on the podcast where it's just being afraid that all of the work that we've been doing in the past year has just been like you know a a trend because you think about like 2021 and it's or you think about 2020 and it's like all of these people like teach me how to be a good ally to you I want to be a good ally oh let's get all this money together and send it to to black organizations and and set up scholarship funds and and yada 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 and in 2021 it's like oh my goodness my children might have to read the bluest eye (laughs) no 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 reinstall the people that took over the that that tried to take over the capital (laughs) tried or succeeded succeeded whatever my dad died in 2015 and you know there's a part of me that's thankful that he didn't have to live through trump but there's also a a part of me that would have been grateful for his commentary because one of the things he talked about the minute barack was elected was when this pendulum Mm -hmm. swings in the other direction it's going to be full-on whiplash for all of us to see how hard it goes back absolutely and you know his words were not just prophetic but they are terrifying me because i don't think the pendulum swing is done you know i think this is more the part of the iceberg that's above the surface and not all of the sort of machinations like happening behind the scenes that we don't even know about like we're following certain things nationally we don't necessarily know what's going on in state houses in North Carolina and Georgia and other places that were so cuspy last time around. But I guarantee you, there are people who see Stacey Abrams' face every night when they close their eyes, and they mean that they are going to turn whatever progress we've been making back. And that, mm-hmm. I find it deeply, deeply disquieting. And I have been dipping more and more into reading and watching science fiction 
so I can just get <laughs> well, out of all of this and just focus on the apocalypse and, instead. Yeah, jump into the metaverse. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that'll be fun. <laughs> when that comes to pass, that'll be great. Let me see what these androids are doing. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, just as long as we're early adopters, I think we'll be okay. <laughs> I, what you were saying about thinking back to last year is just, was the main thing present with me, uh, yeah, at the end of election day and as results were being announced, I was like, (laughs) I didn't, I didn't want to do the, see, we knew it, see, I told you so, but that was all that was ringing in my head of just like, hmm. See, unreliable. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I wanted to make my house a personal collection point for Black Lives Matter signs, for the um, what is it? What are those signs? This this say something like uh, the ones that's like all are welcome here. All are welcome here, or the ones that are like in this house. We, we believe science is real. We believe Black Lives Matter. Immigrants my, aren't aliens. I am collecting them. You can drop them off on my front porch because. Even as I was just walking around, because I'm a person who walks a lot and takes public transportation. So, you know, I see what, you know, people are showing their open support for in their yards and on their bumper stickers. And there were some things from what I've heard openly said and published about certain candidates, Mm -hmm. about certain um, proposals on the ballots and... um, what was going on in people's yards? <laughs> it looked real confused. <laughs> it was just looked real confused. <laughs> like, the we remember George Floyd sign next to the vote no on question two sign. Like, what, right, what I, do you remember? What, what, do, you, what do you remember, remember about it? <laughs> <laughs> it was just so much like, wow. Like, people are a really afraid of change yeah. Yeah. like people are really holding fast to the status quo people are with covid with the uprisings instead of finding a more equal way to do things a different way to do things really just holding fast to crumbling structures like stuff where the beams are breaking it is crumbling at the base the the drywall is falling off like (laughs) (laughs) and you just sitting there trying to hold on to it uh it was it was kind of wild but um uh, yay for rent control being passed yes. in both yeah, Minneapolis yeah. and St. Paul. Yeah. That's, yeah. A, that's a very real thing. That was yeah. good. Yeah, that no, was, that's that's was, a, that's that's a that was thing. good. That's a great thing. I believe uh, Minneapolis City Council is now majority people of color, mm-hmm. mostly people of color. That's fantastic. Three, picked up three progressive seats. Yes. So that's, that's dope. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but there was so much disappointment. Also, <laughs> so much. <laughs> Yeah. And then what 
is also really bothering me because I spend entirely too much time on Twitter. Um, <laughs> and being the Washingtonian that I am, I follow far too many <laughs> Washington media types. <laughs> and like this, the takeaway seems to be like, well, you know, I'm not racist, certainly. But, you know, all of this talk about race and racism, you, you, you're you going to activate all of the races. So you need <laughs> yes. to stop talking about it because you're causing us to lose elections. Mm-hmm. And then we're just going to have to, like, dismantle democracy as we know it and install the insurrectionists again. <laughs> that seems to be the takeaway from Election Day 2021. Yeah. And yeah. it's making my head explode. <laughs> <laughs> very much that yeah very much that yeah but. that and the the um repeating over and over again that it's like all the talking about race all this or all this critical race theory or all this all this see we defunded the police and now look what happened this is what happened when actually nobody was really ever defunded like uh, the defunding didn't any, happen anything, it was police departments got more money than they did in that is co- that is correct. Yeah. So. So. And what? I, <laughs> <laughs> also, at no point, I'm sure, was critical race theory ever being taught to your second graders. That just like wasn't. Yeah. That yeah. wasn't a thing either. Yeah. Unless the critical theory was slavery was bad. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the critical theory? I mean, if you were in a non-Texas state where they talk about slavery. Mm. So, uh, indeed. Well, how about that? Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there are good mm. things, though, that are happening. And, and good things happened in that election. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there are good things happening in the world. And there is one in particular that we were really, really excited about, Lee. Yes. You sent us this story. And I just think this is so cool Thank coming out of a theater this. in Maryland. So you want to share that with us? Yeah. The only theater center in Maryland is doing a production of Beauty and the Beast. That's the Disney version by Alan Minken and Howard Ashman. Um, and they have cast it non-traditionally in the most thoughtful way possible to actually highlight what the story is and not just what the cartoon showed us. Mm-hmm. They have cast an actress named Jade Jones, who self-identifies as a queer and plus-size black woman, as Belle, and Drama Desk nominee and amputee Evan Ruggiero as the Beast. And I saw Evan on an episode of Ellen, Ellen DeGeneres' show a few years ago, He is a tap dancer, and what he does is really, really extraordinary. And I've also been Google-stalking Jade Jones. Jade, I love you. Um, (laughs) And she has a fantastic voice. And if you are over yonder in Maryland, please go see this. The production is set to run through January 2nd. It's currently open. And if you are elsewhere in the world, you can check them out by hashtagging I Am Beauty. And they have some really fantastic... Um, renderings and photos from the production and I just think in the world where we are where we're really struggling with who gets to play what under what set of circumstances Mm -hmm. I am super excited to see this level of thoughtfulness in casting absolutely yeah I was like 
shocked in the best way when you mm-hmm. shared this. I would like, <laughs> like my brain almost like short circuited and not in like a, not in the, this shouldn't be here kind of way, but of course in the, oh my gosh, like I've never right? seen. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. I don't remember if I was talking about it with you all recently or with somebody else, but about like, especially plus size black women and like not being cast as like romantic roles Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. the, you know, where there may be an ingenue type. Mm -hmm. And so seeing this, I was just like, (gasps) just like a. (laughs) It's like when the, when the page loads and the production photo comes up and it's, you're just like, Oh my God. I like first I was like, I've never seen anything like this. And then you're like, why have I never seen anything like this? Yeah. Like it's amazing. This one I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And just so talented and it just makes you it just brings up so many questions of like, well, why can't we all do that? Like why can't we why I don't know if it's why can't we, because like we can. (laughs) You know, it's why don't don't we? we? Right. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm really hoping for the kind of robust response from audiences Mm -hmm. that sends the the right kind of pecuniary message to producers so that they understand that audiences are more sophisticated than we've been treating them for a very long time in terms of who we can see in roles and why we want to see ourselves reflected in a different way than we used to. So I'm super excited about this. I'm I'm wishing that I had a car because when I go home for Christmas, I could actually drive to Maryland, but I don't have a car, so I can't drive, and I'll just have to imagine how wonderful the production is. Well, where is Olney? Child, I do not know. <laughs> I can't isn't drive. It, isn't it by Baltimore? You could probably take an Uber. I probably could, right? I think it's... This is solvable information. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Make it happen. Make it happen. Because that looks wonderful. Owe it to yourself. Yes. Go out <laughs> before the show. Get some crab cakes. Yes. Put some Old Bay on it. <laughs> Ooh, that sounds good. Yes. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Well, shout out to Olney. That is fantastic news. And mm-hmm. yes, we will put links to all of this in the show notes. And like Lisa said, if you are out that neck of the woods trying to make a some sort of Maryland Maryland. joke oh go see the show (laughs) (laughs) my Baltimore friends would be appalled offended (laughs) so so as you as everyone knows Lee and I are from Virginia so my best friend that I, I referenced earlier, Russell, he was um, from Maryland. He's He had passed a few years ago. Um, but he grew up in Maryland. And so we'd be, like, walking down the street, and he'd have, like, sunflower seeds, and he'd be, like, spitting out the shells. And I'd just be like, um, you're Maryland. You're Maryland, you're <laughs> <laughs> But a shout out to Marylanders. Y'all are, y'all are cool. <laughs> um, my dad lives in Maryland. <laughs> well, tell him to see the show. Yeah, no, tell absolutely. Me how he liked it. Oh, yeah, duh. Dad, go see the show. <laughs> <laughs> tell us how it is. <laughs> but, all right, everybody, straighten up, dust yourselves off, because we have a legend on the legend. show today, a treasure, national treasure, and we are so excited to have amazing actor, educator, activist, theater maker, extraordinaire, T. Michael Rambo, Ooh, on the yes. show today, and just... I don't know about y'all, but I found that conversation just 
Yeah. Nourishing. Just yeah. a gem. Just nourishing. A light and so charming and kind. Mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely. So spoiler <laughs> alert, you're going to like it. You're going to have fun. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and we will be right back with you, Michael. All right, everybody, welcome back to The Score. We are here today with a living legend, Mr. T. Michael Rambo, uh, incredible theater maker, activist, artist. Uh, T. Michael is a regional Emmy Award-winning actor and vocalist who has made an indelible mark on the Twin Cities. He has shared his talents nationally and internationally, as well as in television commercials, feature films, and other television programming. Uh, T. Michael is also an accomplished arts educator and affiliate professor at the University of Minnesota, highly sought-after public speaker, and a committed community organizer. And we are so honored to have him on the show today. Thank you so much for being here. Welcome to Michael. Well, I thank you for inviting me, and it's really a treat to be able to have this time together. I feel like Carol Burnett. I'm oh, <laughs> oh shut up. <laughs> very apropos with this very colorful conversation to decide I want to be Carol Burnett, but we'll talk about it. <laughs> So, um, T. Michael, can I ask you a question? There were about 99 different reasons I was excited to talk to you today, Um, not the least of which is some of what I was reading in your bio, and you have had a lot of experience with some of my most favorite playwrights, including the great August Wilson. And I'm curious if you could say a few things about any role models or mentors of color you may have had as you were starting your career and what it was that you admired about them. Sure. You know, I think it's fascinating for you to ask me about uh, mentors of color. I think particularly um, as an African-American, many of my earliest memories are um, the awe and the wonder that I experienced when I saw myself on television. You know, that was always so, um, it stood out as such a a very um, powerful opportunity for me to revel in this cup of gladness that that looked like me. (laughs) In a way that um, elevated and and celebrated uh, that moment in time, I remember, some of my first memories of Paul Robeson, who was a very, um, very, was certainly one of my grandfather's biggest heroes and thinking of what his role as a person of, uh, uh, who transcended uh, several different platforms of, adv- of, of, of artistry as well as, uh, as activism, whether it be his roles in Emperor Jones, whether it be in his roles as an athlete, as a statesman, as an expatriate, uh, all of the things that he did really let me know that there were endless possibilities and endless promise to what it meant to be uh, a person that looked like me and didn't um, often hear enough about how we were doing great things. Uh, and that uh, that was only in the school that I found that the, to be the case. My family celebrated Blackness with uh, quite a uh, a bit of, of integrity and mm. a commitment to seeing that I read Black authors. My 
my father's my brother's godmother is Nikki Giovanni. My father, oh, wow. my father is uh, was an educator. My, is an educator. My mother, my grandmother, my grandfather. And my family history is coming from a small freedman town in East Texas named Rambo, Texas. So I'm a Rambo from a black community. So I had a lot of black pearls of wisdom growing up that really were significant in my upbringing. But your question was thinking of August Wilson and others. I've had the great pleasure of working with were there any people uh, particularly of color, black and brown bodies or, or African-Americans specifically. I do know that Paul Robeson was one, James Earl Jones was certainly another for me, both of whom I was just um, taken and consumed by their voices and their presence, as was the case with Ozzie Davis and Ruby D. So for me, I have a generation of 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 shoulders that were very broad and sturdy that I stand on and their voices uh, uh, occupied spaces of agency and of, of great dignity. And so I celebrate them in that question, not only as actors, but as people understood that being an artist means being an activist and being an artist means being a person with agency and being an artist means being a person who understands that to use one's art form is to open and heal the wound at the same time. And for black folks, we have had a wound that needs healing and needs a, a balm of Gilead. And that balm is found through song and through storytelling and through dance and through visual and performance art. With all you just shared about being surrounded by Black art and Black thought while growing up, what was it that made you want to try theater or performance specifically? And what has that journey been like for you? Uh, I hit the ground, a big head, bubbly, bouncy baby boy, always. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't know that there's ever been a moment in my life where I wasn't actively seeking the adoration and adoration and the applause and the acknowledgement of the loved ones and the community around me. Though I did not start my performance journey until well into my life, I, I um, found myself, because of the nature of my family of origin, choosing to do what I do today was not an option. There was, there was no space mm -hmm. in the experiences of Black families who realized that this, this thing that I see myself as and that I live firmly planted in was uh, sort of um, a dalliance that didn't make sense or just we didn't have time for that. Shai, you didn't mm -hmm. have time for <laughs> 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 That's not going to happen, you know, that way. Um, even though I had many people around me, uh, my mother and father grew up with the Isley brothers who would come to our home and sing in Cincinnati, Ohio. Uh, the, um, my goodness! What? <laughs> <laughs> my mother, my mother grew up in Lincoln Heights, and my father, after my 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 grandfather moved to become the principal of a small, not small, rather large uh, elementary school called Douglas Elementary in Cincinnati. Uh, the Isley Brothers became a, a a frequent guest in our home, as Barbara McNair and a host of really remarkable yeah. black folks because of the the. Um, trajectory, not trajectory, but the, the interweaving nature of my aunt, who's my father's youngest sister. Um, she was quite the activist with Nikki and a host of other people uh, throughout Newark and, and New York and a host of other areas in the East Coast around the 60s and the 50s um, that we had a lot of people 
that I would sit at the feet of and, and listen and watch. I didn't walk till I was about three or four. Um, and because I had a problem with my legs, I wore uh, something called a Thomas heel and I had a, an issue where my legs were bent outward. And so I spent a lot of time as a child listening and on the floor, you know, just soaking up the joy of all the people who would give it back to me. Mm. You know, so when you, when you ask that question, um, I think back on, you know, how important it, it has been for me to um, really take in every opportunity to share my, my voice. And while it wasn't um, acting, it was always in, in transforming space. My grandfather used to say, boy, you can be a thermometer or you can be a thermostat. One changes the atmosphere. What do you want to be? And I always realized that being a thermostat was my goal in life. And so I, I, I've often walked into spaces with the intent, the sole purpose of changing the atmosphere. And so um, that happened early on in life. I boxed, I played football. I, I was an athlete all throughout high school. I, my first name is Thomas. So I was, grew up as a, as a light-skinned boy speaking the King's English far too well and was frequently mm -hmm. referred to as an Uncle Tom. So I, mm -hmm. I fought fervently and frequently as a kid and um, was put uh, was put in, in a pair of boxing gloves at about nine and never looked back. It was easier to um, to throw out into the world my pain through thrusts and punches and being a pugilist than it was to take the blows. So I would fight back frequently. Um, it seems contrary to the person people come to see me as when people hear that I'm a, or the boxer like, child, you're black, what? <laughs> <laughs> You're so nice. I said, well, nice has nothing to do with being able to throw a blow. It just happened mm -hmm. that I learned early on. Um, I, I did not begin my acting career until I was in my late 20s. So to your question, I go around the barn often to get to the front door. Um, <laughs> um, it, it's such that, uh, yes, I, um, I went to school and got a degree in marketing from the University of Texas. Uh, in business and then went back and got a degree in finance and um, did a lot of other things. And it wasn't until I came to Minnesota to, to get sober that I really grounded myself firmly in theater uh, as a, being a theater professional and in voice. I didn't t study music or singing or, or, or theater or anything of that sort, but my years of doing the work has given me a chance to, to teach theater at the University of Minnesota as an adjunct professor um, and to do a lot of other things, but most of my, my life I spent uh, trying to figure out why I didn't do what I always knew I was supposed to do. And then I finally figured it out that I had, that I could do it. And so I've been doing it ever since. And so I've been a theater professional for, and theater maker, uh, and performer for about 40 years. So T. Michael, you and I met about four or five years ago. Shut up. We met when? Well, at recess. Hey, you remember that? When you were drinking chocolate milk and I was having a whatever. No. Yeah, yeah. Out on the playground. Exactly. <laughs> we, met, we met through One Voice. Yes, at uh, One Voice Mixed Chorus while you were doing the uh, Bayard Rustin Oratorio um, by Steve Malloy. Um, and, you know, when that was all happening, I had only been here for a couple of months here in the Twin Cities, and I didn't realize um, what an incredible, vibrant, exciting theater scene 
we have here in the Twin Cities. So I'm curious to get your perspective um, on what makes the theater scene here in Minnesota so vibrant and exciting and special. And what has your journey into this scene, um, or through this scene rather, uh, been like, especially as a Black performer? Yeah. Um, well, I can say that the music things, the music, well, music and theater, I think of the industry, the arts as a whole, has a lot to do with the nature of seven to nine months a year in cold weather that people <laughs> have to find ways to live out loud outside of outdoors. And that has brought people into spaces where we have, where we convene to tell stories, to move our bodies through dance, to celebrate art by viewing it in museums, by, you know, so we, we, we have found that Minnesotans and many places where, where cold or weather prevents people from either being cool enough to enjoy, like in Arizona, or being hot enough, like in Minnesota, you know, that you know what I'm saying, whether the weather allows. <laughs> and so um, that's one thing that I know that has made people seek out the arts here, the weather. I think that there's also been a lot of Fortune 500 companies and corporations that understand that retention requires the arts and requires opportunity for people yeah. to really feel like they have a, a reason of, to both either volunteer or be philanthropic or to be um, a, a patron of the arts. That's another one of the aspects. I think another aspect has to do for uh, people uh, of color, there, there being a great number of uh, global majority arts organizations and arts theater companies um, because uh, of the nature of, of there being an absence of people who look like the communities that want to see themselves. Mm -hmm. So they've had a need to figure out a medium with which to celebrate the, you know, our existence, our presence. And, and the best way to, to eradicate a culture is to remove their voice. And the best way to elevate it is to celebrate the voice. And so I think that, that we find that places like Move Performance Theater and, and Teatro de Pueblo and, and Penumbra Theater and a host of others are here because we have to ensure that people realize that we are here. And to do that, we, we use our voices, our stories, our movement, Ayala, uh, um, um, Dance Company, True Dance, um, the, the groups and, and the organizations keep going and flowing because that's one of the one things with a beating heart and a loving affection that being that means a human a human being anyone with a beating heart and a loving affection wants to ensure that we are always reminded that we've been here so whether it be bearing children whether it be leaving a legacy whether it be writing a letter whether it be painting uh, 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 some sort of visual uh, ex experience or expression of who we are we all want to have the benefit of knowing that that someone will remember that we were and that we are. And so the arts do that. And I think that that's uh, what has helped it here in the Twin Cities. That's mm. an incredibly powerful sentiment. And being a person who's still pretty new to the Twin Cities, I'm curious if you could say a little more about maybe what, how the performance community has been changed post the murder of Mr. Floyd? The, the, the I, I think that question is, is, is still evolving. It's mm -hmm. still, uh, it's still being 
agitated by the turn of the, by the times, agitated like what in the in the washing machine and, and the times are fragile, not, not not like a flower, but more like a bomb, you know. Yeah. So 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 I, I think that the time that we're looking at uh, after the public lynching of George Floyd, we see that art forms have have really recognized that art is like what I was speaking of in the first question, art is activism. And so people are realizing that uh, as my family once thought that art is frivolous, it's just kind of a dalliance. It is really fierce and formidable and, and, and fashions ways to, to really um, tease apart those things that keep us from being able to realize what is possible and what needs to happen for our communities. This current time of social justice, we as social creatures are coming together with more and more a need to eradicate, stomp out, and acknowledge that we cannot continue if we are to survive and to thrive. And we cannot continue to allow um, actions, activity, activities, and advances against us to continue without us standing up in full voice in ways that really make sure and certain that if you cross this line, you're going to encounter resistance. And I think that people really are, are at a place and you're seeing it in varying communities. And it's just where we are as, as, as a race, as a culture, and I mean a human race, that um, we really are on the precipice of saying, I'm mad as hell, I just won't take it anymore. It's like that one movie, from, that one line from that film. Um, network. Network, right, exactly. And people are mad as hell. And, and they really have decided that they're, that we are not going to acquiesce or step back or placate or, or, or just uh, allow others to, to continue in the manner that has been unacceptable for so long. And so that, that shows up in everything from, from what for me in, in many ways, though I know Lee and, and, and Rocky, this is, your, this is your network, the DEI area, but I mean, though we, we're finding the DEIs almost, if we don't, if we don't look out, it's going to be lip service. Yeah. So we got to make sure that people who are wearing these hats, as I know that you all are so wearing them with, with such integrity, but across the board, it's becoming an easy way to, to placate and to quiet yeah. voices that rumble yeah. in our communities. And unless um, we do the work of making uncomfortable those who are comfortable, then we're really, we're really going to um, be in a, in a worse place than we were before this incidents around uh, Brother Floyd and before we, before we really found ourselves where we are today. So, yeah, I think there's a, there's a, there's a big push that people really want um, to put an end to feeling uncomfortable in our skin. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
knowing that you're an educator as well, I wonder what you, what do you say to young artists who are emerging and who also want to see and be a part of some of these changes you're describing because they don't like the inequity that they see either. So what advice do you, do you give to young artists? The biggest advice I give to young artists is to plant your feet, claim your space and speak to the room and, and to be fearless and to commit to being unstoppable and commit to being, um, a force of nature. And whether that be a tsunami or a hurricane or a beautiful rainbow that trickles down like leaves cascading to the ground below, we have to really do what we can to be the experts of our experience to the extent that we make sure that others hear what that story is. Um, and so I tell students all the time to uh, be, be as well read as possible, uh, to seek original sources, to resist the urge to welcome the words of others as truth without knowing your own truth because their truth becomes yours. And that is not always accurate. It's, it's all, it's oftentimes to, to our own detriment, you know? And so we have to find our own truth. Uh, and so I ask young people to really, um, be willing to be uncomfortable for a while, whether that be, um, not having immediate gratification and having the best ear pods or, or doing, <laughs> but to, to know that this too shall pass, or as my great grandmother on my father's side, I would say, baby, it's going to be okay. And even if it's not okay, it's going to be okay. And it took me years to understand when she would say that, what that meant, but it's like, this too shall pass, but it's going to be okay. And even if it's not okay with time, with being mature and adult and learning the lessons of life, it will be okay. So there's no reason to be ruffled and uncomfortable, not uncomfortable, but just like fearful that your, your time won't come. It will come. And it's just a matter of take of, of being present and being present is a difficult thing for our, our culture right now, being just in the moment, more and more people are talking about it, but doing it is hard work. And I find I, I'm challenged by it all the time. I'm challenged um, by being silent and being able to listen and being able to just uh, hold my space. I want what I want and I want it now. I'm a big King baby, <laughs> you know, I have to watch those things. And um, I think also I tell young people, if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. And we've heard that before, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, that is a word. <laughs> and so I really encourage them to always find two or three other people who you either don't agree with, don't align yourself with, or don't know as much as. Because that's how you'll get to know what your own truth is. Because, you know, it's like, um. We, we never really know who we are until we know who we're not, if that makes any sense. We never really know who we are until we find out who we are not. And, and, and that happens when we're in rooms with people who don't look like us, who don't agree with us, 
who are smarter than us. And it's okay for somebody to be, I mean, I, I, I love it. That that lead man right there next year, that's a smart, that's a smart uh, little breed. And I just met him, he'd be holding the cuts like, hmm, mm-hmm, y'all need to <laughs> <laughs> I'm listening to you, I'm conjugating your verbs for you, I'm clocking your tenses, because I know what you're going to do. I'm watching people. I'll be watching them. But yeah, so that that's what I tell you to people. That's um, not just great advice for young artists that wants also some wonderful nuggets for middle-aged artists too. Mm. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Can I ask um, a little bit about, are there things that companies like ours can do to be of more support to artists like you? I almost busted out. (laughs) What can the Minnesota Opera do for artists like me? They can do what you're doing right now because I see four, three people on this Zoom call that look like me, and that's something that wasn't the case mm-hmm. 35 years ago. So that's a good start. You know, um, that's a really important start. I think organizations have to start internally to impact a communities that look like us um, externally. You know, in, until the organization at its roots, at at its ground level, really um, start doing the work internally. We can't help other people. You know, it's it's like a, they say, put your mask on first. If you don't put your oxygen mask on first, <laughs> help somebody else. You know, and and that um, and that's and that's what it, it means to me that the, the Minnesota Opera could certainly do, um, and that is create spaces where artists from any any tributary, any artery of the global majority can say, hey, y'all really want to hear what I got to do? And you really see me? You're not dismissing my experience by saying, oh, I, I know people like you. No, you don't know people like me. But now if you're welcoming me to the table and not having me on the table to be split up into into and dissected into varying pieces. I'm very happy well. to be at the table. Mm. You know, um so there there's a there there's a lot to be said about um what the Minnesota Opera has and continues to see itself doing from these frequent conversations of late uh, regarding what uh currently is called the lab and its interest in trying to really formalize an approach to letting this space either be dismantled, de- dis- deconstructed, or designed and reimagined. Then there's so many things that the organization is currently doing that I celebrate and acknowledge and applaud. So um, I wouldn't say anything more than keep, uh, what, what, what's it say? Uh, keep working on your kitchen. Thank <laughs> 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 you, too bad our listeners don't know. See, the listeners don't know I was rubbing the back of my head. I think our listeners probably know. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, one thing that I'm curious about. Um, so, 
Uh, one of the running themes of this show is um, we have been trying to find um, an alternative for the term uh, BIPOC, which um, I guess for those of you who don't know, I'm sure probably all of you know, um, but Black, Indigenous, People of Color. Um, and a few weeks ago, Lee told us about something um, that he heard from you, actually, which is People of the Global Majority. And I just loved it so much. Actually, we loved it so much that we named our episode that um, uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I'm just curious, you know, where did that come from? And... Um, you know, how, how can we make it catch on? Because I really want it to, uh, to catch on. <laughs> it came out of, um, it, it, it came, it came, it happened in two ways. Ananya, uh, who, Ananya's last name, I challenge, I'm challenged in saying it correctly, so I'm not going to butcher it, but Ananya's dance company and Sarah Bellamy and a number of us were doing a, a walk um, we were walking through the communities, showing community support, and we were walking from each direction, from people from the East Arts community, St. Paul, the West, the North, and the South, and we converged in in, in St. Paul. And one of the walkers said, look at us, we're just a global majority. Mm. Mm. And when... Um, when she said it, uh, one of the walkers said it in a way that just was kind of like, hmm, and it resonated with me. And then I went into another conversation um, that was um, um, facilitated by a sister who, uh, whose name now is going to escape me, but she does social justice work and she convened a group of people together through theater, um, 10,000 Things Theater, and she said global majority in her conversation. I was like, chat as that's who we are. And and I and I say it and I own it and I embrace it because it is time for people who stand in this work. I'm gonna go back by deconstructing why I never and always sidestep BIPOC. It's divisive, it's divisive, it's binary, and it's more the same. Black, indigenous, and the rest of y'all folk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other people, yeah. you know, people of color, white folk, you color, you got color. Sometimes it's red, sometimes it's black. It's all color, everybody got color. So, so it just all of a sudden for me, became just a way of saying, well, anybody else. And it, and it, felt, it felt very flip and very like, with no agency and just like, I don't even know who came up with it, but whoever came up with the thought was really clever. And I said, no, it's not clever. I either say African-American, I say black and brown bodies. I say people of varying communities. I say people who, who sell, who, who have a, a, um, a loving heart and a breathing affection, a breathing, uh, a loving heart and a breathing affection. You know, I, I talk about all these different things. And then I said, global majority is who we are. We are no longer a minority. We never have been a minority. We've always been a majority. And we have embraced a capitalist, we have embraced a Eurocentric, we have embraced a, a construct that continues to subvert to sub, submerge us in a belief system that we are less than. We are 
marginalized, mm -hmm. disenfranchised, a minority of people who need to find a way to really be more. We've always been more. We always, and we are more. We are more, there are more of us as a global majority than any other group of people on the planet, but yet we consistently live in a country that says that we're a minority. I don't get that. I don't believe it. And while it's hard for people to hear when I say it, I say it and they're like, global majority, what are you talking about? It sounds so, mm. I said, because that's true. And, and that's what, what we, we really have to um, remember that there's power in all of, of our bloodline. And the vast majority are indigenous people. Yes, this is true. But we are a majority. And we have a right to stand in that truth. And we have a right to remind those who choose to relegate us to a less than a marginalized status that that's not who we are. And that's why there's so much fear and that's why there's so much conf conflict and there's so much um, vitriol and, and animosity and so many levels of things that are hurled against global majority members because we can't have that because how can what we've created work? So if we want to dismantle racism and systemic racism and white privilege, we have to recognize that white privilege comes by letting people believe that they're less than. And so global majority is, is who I think we are and who I know we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that brings me to something I've heard about uh, some folks being careful about how they use the term white supremacy or using it much less just because the ideology of white supremacy, the belief that white people are superior is a lie. It's false. So we just want to be careful about um, the connotation or, you know, the meaning it has in certain settings, not wanting to affirm its power over us or our lives because we're actually trying to dismantle it. We want to dismantle white supremacy. Um, that brings me to a question that I have about what roles have been your favorite or what um, particular performances have been your favorite as a Black artist? Like what has been so uh, affirming to your Blackness or that you really feel like you saw yourself in? Well, I, I'm going to tease you because I love you. I, 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 love you. <laughs> I love you like a neck bone. And, and <laughs> right. But I can't never have a, a favorite thing as a black person because that's all I can be as a black person in anything I do. So, so, so what is my favorite role as a, as a per, what's my favorite role? Well, my favorite role it expands across many different platforms. Uh, my favorite role is as an educator, which is really funny mm. because teaching children is my favorite role because to see that I am passing on something to them that they can reach their greater yet to be is such a powerful role. It's it, it outshines any light or any particular set of applause or orchestral score because children and I, and I mean, I, I've taught high school students but I, I like the little bitty boo-boos. When children, <laughs> I, I really, that, that's my favorite role. And so and that's one of my favorite roles. 
my favorite stage role, which is the question that you asked, theatrical role, um, would have been two different ones. One was one was a role that I played in a piece called Crowns. I played a man character called Man, mm-hmm. and it had a lot to do with just the nature of the show, the actors that were in it: Javita Steele, Greta Oglesby, um, Austin Van and Regina Marie Williams were the women in this production. Uh, And then myself was the one male role. And it just reminded me of how amazing we are, how beautiful we are, and how much Blackness um, is not the absence of light. It is the beauty that we find when we need to be comforted by it by something that cloaks all things that, that make us be afraid. Some people are afraid of the dark, but there's something about the warmth of being cocooned in a, in a wonderful velvet cast, like cloak of, of darkness and, and being on stage with, with black folks and doing work that talks and celebrates blackness is like being shrouded, being, um, what is it called? Uh, it is called, and I'm I'm seeing it, when a baby is swaddled. It's like being swaddled. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's nothing more comforting for a child than to be swaddled. And to be swaddled mm-hmm. in blackness is like the cocooning of what happens when a butterfly comes out of that space where it comes out this beautiful, beautiful creature. And when the, the swaddling is like a baby, when they come out of that and grow into themselves, there's this beautiful creature. It starts very small in this space. And blackness is like that for me. Uh, and doing plays around black people, it, 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 I know I'm getting real kind of in the head here, but it, it, it's really, um, it, it's a great way to see that when you are able to be around people that look like you, you don't, here, here it is. Here, I, I'm, I'm getting around the bar. I'm coming to the front door. <laughs> <laughs> it remi- reminds me of like my grandmother, another another one of my elders, who would say, "Baby, when you tell the truth, you never have to remember." Mm-hmm. And, and when you're around people that look like you and telling black stories, you don't have to remember because this is all. This is of all that you are, and there's no need to remember. There's only space to be. And so to be on that stage in front of 1,500 people at the Guthrie stage, it was like being. It was like what it meant to come out of that cocoon, out of that swaddling, and just be just be brilliant. And not that as a performer, but that that that's what that role was like. It's like the same thing doing um, Carolina Change. While it was not a story of African Americans, it was a story of a black woman's empowerment. And I played a dryer of all things. <laughs> uh, so, so to personify a dryer, that was another role that really stood out for me. That was really very powerful, and it brought the Twin Cities community into seeing me. But the one role that really defined my 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 actor's chops, and I really honed my eye teeth on, was playing a minister in Black Nativity, which was the, the annual mm-hmm. celebration. Yeah of the Christmas story told through Langston Hughes and presented at Penumbra Theater. And it was presented and directed by uh, a great griot, uh, griot uh, Lewis Whitlock, who recently 
transition to the ancestors, his work in that piece in the early, in the late eighties and early nineties brought to us a chance to see uh, this group of, of black folks after the Emancipation Proclamation and what it meant to celebrate the birth of Christ, but what it meant to celebrate the stories of blackness and the stories of people seeking to find themselves in biblical terms, but in, gen in, in real historical terms too. So those three productions, both uh, Crowns, uh, Carolina Change, Black Nativity are the three, uh, the three-legged stool that that I stand on artistically. Uh, oh my gosh, swaddled in blackness. Oh my god, I love that. Oh my goodness. Um, you know, it, it, it's funny because I um I had this experience a few years ago. Um, I was at Art Equity. And I was there with about 11 or 12 other black folks, and we created a piece um, together. And I realized that I had never had that experience before of just creating something, uh, you know, a work of art, you know, from the ground up with just a group of black people. Um, and it was incredible. And I, I, I think you just put words to, to that feeling that I haven't been able to, to articulate, um, for, for such a long time, because it was, it was just so special, um, to just, you know, just be able to just be and to breathe and create and to look around you in every direction and just see blackness around you. And it was just, um, transformative, really. I mean, that's the word. Um, that I would use for it. Um, and, and just this feeling of like, oh, okay, well, like, like I'm home, <laughs> you know, I've just been like out, you know, wandering around and now I'm home. Um, so, so thank you. Thank you for that. Um, but switching gears slightly, um, you know, you did say it piqued my curiosity a little bit that your favorite role um, is being an educator. Um, so I'm just curious, just what, in your opinion, do you think that, you know, educational institutions um, could be doing um, to really better help or support um, children of the global majority? One of the things that's missing for me, and one of the things that is present is the shift in the paradigm that's happening because of the the public lynching of, of George Floyd and because of what uh, happened to that, that we're really realizing that our children are being, have been lost and, and need guidance. It wasn't that we didn't realize that before, but we really see right now more than ever post-pandemic and presently in the pandemic, that our children are are are, are losing, and by leaps and bounds, there there's there's educational slide. There are a host of other things that are happening as a result of this, and so we're starting to see that we, as a community, as a whole, as the broader, full community, recognizes that we are losing some of our greatest assets, some of our fertilest fields, and our richest seeds by letting our children go by the wayside. So what's mm -hmm. happening? It's played people like Alex Pate with Innocent Classroom and other people who are working in this in this community, recognizing that we have to teach educators how to educate not only black babies, but all of our global members, because we realize that we 
have missed the bus and missed the boat when it comes to uh, seeing our babies not as um, challenges, but as rich assets. And so often I go into classrooms and we'll, we'll have a teacher when I do a residency say, well, Maurice, Paul, and Tyrone, they can't be a part of it today. Before I even walk in the room, they don't give me a chance. I don't even get a chance to, to see these kids. Mm. And, and they're typically African-American boys. You know, and so we, what Alex Page and his classroom and other educators and other programs are trying to do is to get teachers to see that we need to see the power of what we're putting on our children, how it's tearing them down and reducing their ability to succeed and to excel. And it comes because educators don't see children who, who are black and brown. They see them as challenges, not as assets. And so how do we change that? We change that by um, bringing in more people who look like them into the classrooms. Most children, by the time they're in fifth grade, have seen only one or two black teachers, if at all. If at all, and if they have seen more than two, two of them have been vice principals who are punitive because they are they are people who, who deal with detention and and a host of other sorts of responsibilities. And some of our black black babies in particular go into detention and into the rooms or, or, or timeout rooms so they can see people who look like them. Kids aren't aren't slow. Mm, yeah. They recognize that if, if I get and act a fool. I get one-on-one -on -one time with Paul, who's the only tall six foot two black man plays basketball, takes him to the gym. I get to play with him for two periods while the white teacher who doesn't see me says I'm a, a, a hard, uh, a, a, a challenge, but I'm actually a jewel. And the only way you can see the jewel is, is to compress and put energy. And um, we need to, to make sure that we can put the right amount of energy and mm -hmm. and power into children by letting them have chances to be the, be themselves by having chances to read books that look like them to hear their own stories to hear their own history to hear and and see and smell to taste their own foods in school to have healthy foods to have all these things that are important for any child but we have to make sure that in its specificity, we have a universality. So the more specific we are to our children, the more everyone benefits. The more specific we are in our educational platforms and our educational systems, in the way we reach and approach young people and teach them, the better off we all are. And that's what I firmly believe that we need to do in our schools. And we also need to make sure that children get more access to the arts because for many of our children, the arts is the only way that they will succeed because they can find other ways of being problem solvers and critical thinkers through arts education. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, T. Michael, I know that we're a little compressed for time. <laughs> but uh, before we let you go, I know you've got a performance coming up at Minnesota Orchestra. So do you want to tell the listeners out there a little bit more um, about that? Yeah, I, I, I am very fortunate to have the great pleasure of doing a number of things over the next course of uh, months uh, and particularly toward the the, the remaining portion of 2021, I'll be working with the likes of Paviel French, a remarkable artist, vocalist, writer, storyteller, and um, 
McKnight Award winner and Jerome Award winner. Um, she and an Emmy Award winner as well. She oh, okay. is constructing a piece that um, is going to be done with Kevin Kling, who is nationally and internationally renowned storyteller. And it's going to be with the Minnesota Orchestra called Joyous Echoes with Robert Oberdahl and then Christina Baldwin and Thomasina Petrus and myself. We will come together and through storytelling and song, we will celebrate the lives of Kevin and Pabiel and uh, Christina, Thomasina, Robert, and myself will be the uh, the instruments with which we can be the the wonderful broad and intricate strokes of their stories that will be brought to the stage. So that's going to happen uh, the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th of December at Orchestra Hall with Minnesota Orchestra. So that's a real treat that I'm a really very proud to be a part of. And and you know, the, and then I go on to do a number of things throughout the year. I'll be doing a piece at the Jungle Theater called Redwood that happens in uh, February and March. Then I go on to do a piece with 10,000 Things Theater called Thunder Knocking on the Door, which is a blues musical. And then mm -hmm. I, I'll leave that production and go on to Theater Latte Da doing 12 Angry Men, the musical. So I have a, a, a nice arc of work unfolding for the next five to seven months. So I'm very, I'm very fortunate, very blessed to be in a, t in, a, in a city that has such great work and gives me a chance to be a part of it. Well, that's super exciting. We can't wait. Um, so there will be a link um, to the uh, to get tickets to the Minnesota Orchestra performance in the show notes. So everybody go out and get your tickets to that right now. And um, do you have a, a website or a social media where people can stay updated on the other things that are coming up? Ooh, child is old. <laughs> if y'all can help me with an assistant or somebody who knows how to say it, I have a website. I don't have a Insta Inc. or a, a Multigram. Or... <laughs> Not a Multigram. <laughs> as, as, my, as, as my grandfather would say, telegraph, tele, telephone, tele-Negro. <laughs> It just means we'll have to have you back on the show. Yeah, I'd be happy to be back and, and continue to tell folks. And, and then I also wear t-shirts that say what I'm doing. When I'm out. <laughs> Love it. Well, T. Michael, thank you so much again for joining us today. It has been just an honor and just so much fun. I hope you had fun. I had a blast. It's been great fun. It's been really a treat. And I thank you for, for sharing your time with me and giving me a chance to be a part of this great conversation. Oh, <laughs> well, the pleasure, the pleasure, I assure you, is ours. Absolutely. And uh, with that, uh, thank you again, T. Michael. And we will be right back with Pure Black Joy. Yay! And we are back. See, told y'all it was gonna be nourishing. <laughs> he was charming as I was gonna say a bad word. <laughs> charming <laughs> AF. <laughs> but that was so fun. Thank you so much, T Michael, for coming on the show. And I hope we can make that a regular thing. Cause that Absolutely. was yeah. that was dope. Um yeah, so now it's time for our favorite segment. It's time for Pure Black Joy. Hit it, Paige. Peanut butter jelly time. Peanut butter jelly time. Peanut butter jelly. Peanut butter jelly. Peanut butter jelly with a baseball bat. Peanut butter jelly. Yes. So, of 
course, this is the uh, segment of the show where we talk about some black things that are making us happy uh, this week. So, Lee, did you want to... I know you had someone you wanted to shout out. Yes, I did. Um, So this is an unusual piece of pure black joy, but it tickled me, so I'm going to share it. Um, As many of you know... um, Donald J. Trump, who had Mm. been president of the United States for some time, Mm -hmm. has this little piece of case where he's trying to utilize executive privilege despite the fact that he is no longer president. And it is an effort to skirt around um, the January 6th hearings with Congress. So a federal judge Judge Tanya Chutkin, who was appointed by Barack Obama. Okay, and come on to Judge Tanya. Right. And <laughs> for the record, she happens to have been born in Kingston, which is birthplace of yes. many of my favorite, favorite people, um, ruled against Trump because he is obviously not president, so he cannot utilize executive privilege. And I just want to share the quote. Um, <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Fun. Child. Oh, God. Okay, here we um, go. The library did, is open. What did um, Judge Tanya have to say? Presidents are not kings, and plaintiff is not president. So despite what you may have <laughs> oh. heard about Trump winning against Joe Biden last November, um, he did not, and this is further proof. So this is my pure black joy for probably the rest of the year. Okay. I love a good face crack. Yes. Yeah, yeah. That was potent. A brief, beautiful, yes, concise read. <laughs> Love it. This Karen Huger level. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just concise, beautiful. Where is Jamal? <laughs> and meanwhile, Love you it. put your face back together and attempt to move on with your life. <laughs> well, I mean. I guess just for me, I mean, I guess this is now an ongoing segment. <laughs> Rocky's Bachelor re- re- recaps. Um, yes. You know, Michelle is still glistening, moisturized, mm-hmm. looking beautiful. Mm-hmm. I think her hair is, it's its time for her to leave Palm Springs because it's getting a little... Oh. It's getting a little raggedy. Are they not? Are they not maintaining the sewing? It doesn't that seem that. It seems like there's some problems. They got her going install, and but they didn't think of next week, okay, they're coming to Minnesota. Okay. Okay. So all right. So I think those problems will be alleviated. <laughs> okay. But I mean, but it's getting cold now too, and it may snow. They need to no, get no, her a protective. No, style. but this is this was this was filmed in July. Oh, okay. That's yes. right. That's right. Yes. Okay. So, so it's gonna be okay. She looks better in the previews. I think it was just like maybe she had gone swimming or something. I don't know. I don't know what happened to it. Um, but we're kind of at the point of the season where it's getting a little boring, and many of the men are revealing themselves to be just trash. Oh no. Yes. The the one that she went on the first one on date one date. We should have known that he was trash. Garbage. Was he the one who rubbish. had DM'd her before? No, okay. no. Yeah, how's he doing? He's good. He's good. <laughs> <laughs> He's still cute. We still like him. <laughs> but no, that this one. His name is Jamie, and we should have known that he was just pure basura, pura oh, no. basura. <laughs> when in his intro photo, he was wearing a, a V-neck T-shirt that was printed to look like a dashiki. What? Yes. Aww. Yes. 
Yeah. And I was like, how did that even... Because at first I was like, "Is it, are you wearing a dashiki, sir? And But the sleeves were like a t-shirt. So that was what I interpreted. I don't know. It was weird. But anyway, he was try- and he was like lying on her. He was like, oh, well, mm-hmm. my friend in Minneapolis, lives in Minneapolis, and he said that you were seen coming out of a bar with a light-skinned baller and that that was your boo. <laughs> and then he, those were the actual what? those were the actual <laughs> words that this man said. <laughs> and so all of the other men and he was like, and all the men in the house are talking about it. And then all the other men were like, We don't know what you just made that up, sir. <laughs> Why is it so messy? It's so messy. And so she was just like, I'm not having any of that. You need to go home, sir. Oh um and she's still I feel like she made some questionable decisions with some of these. There are just some red flags uh-huh. going on with some yeah. of these men. Let me ask you about this clip I saw because I'm, yes. I'm trying to get mm-hmm. into the to the bachelor, the bachelorette. Um, so somebody had won a jacket. Yes. And somebody threw it in the pool. Yes. And then somebody else started crying. Yes. Walk me through what happened. So <laughs> there was this man. His name was Peter. And his job title was Pizzapreneur, and that apparently he owns a pizzeria in Florida, I guess. And everything is wrong already. Yes. And his intro was he came out of the limo and he said, Buongiorno, Principessa. And he had dough in his hand and he like threw it up like they do in like the pizzeria and then just let it fall to the ground <laughs> and she was like are you gonna I thought you were gonna make pizza you're not making pizza okay <laughs> so on the first group date they because she's a school teacher so they had like you know like a like a spelling test like a spelling bee and like you know they had to do like math like long division or whatever and so it was like spell narcissist and one of the other dudes will wrote peter (laughs) 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 and so they you know have been at odds ever since then and so they got into like this little fight or whatever because like on the they went on this date where they had to do it was like promotion for like the new top gun sequel or something that's coming out and so they yeah I don't know. All right. All right. Just, just <laughs> don't ask too many questions. Yep, I'm going to leave it alone. But, like, part of the date was they had to, like, wrestle each other or something. And so these two got paired together to wrestle. And the one who is not Peter just whooped him. Just whooped him. <laughs> and before the, the, the wrestling match or whatever, he'd been like, I'm going to beat him up. I'm going to kick his, his butt, like whatever. And then like afterwards, he was like, I can't believe he had to resort to violence <laughs> in front of Michelle. <laughs> and so for winning the, the wrestling match, he, he won this jacket. Um, and I guess it's it's another piece of Top Gun promotional material or whatever. And so at the after party, they started getting into a fight and like the other one was like, you don't even own a pizza restaurant. Your pizza restaurant is not open. And Peter is all like, oh, well, try telling that to my customers because I changed lives one slice at a time. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. And so the other one got up and he left the jacket on the on the chair or whatever. And so then Peter like like 
picked it up and was like, this jacket's going for a little swim. And then all the other Sir. dudes were like, please don't do Sir. this. Please don't Sir. do this. Please don't do this. <laughs> <laughs> and so then the other one came back, and I guess Peter had gone to go have his time with Michelle because he wasn't there for some reason when the other mm-hmm. one came back. And he was like, where's my jacket? And all the other dudes were like looking down and like, he put it in the pool. And like, instead of like getting like, like angry he just got like really visibly sad and all of the other dudes were like just don't blow up on him because if you don't blow up on him you'll look like the bigger person like you know just like hold it together it's gonna be okay and he's like starts crying oh my gosh like and he's not he's like not even mad and he just like goes like inside and he starts talking to one of the producers he's like he's really pushing my buttons (laughs) and you hear him like weeping it was actually really sad oh my gosh yeah Throwing the jacket in the pool, though, like, is it the Bachelorette or Bad Girls Club? Like, right. I mean, and then the end of the messy. segment was him with, like, a pool skimmer, like, trying to get it out of the pool. Like, they didn't even <laughs> get, like, a production person or or an intern to go, I mean, like, fish it out for him. Sad. Yeah. <laughs> of course not. Yeah, they the wanted that shot. Maybe. That was more important. <laughs> yeah. to get that shot. <laughs> yeah. Fishing yeah. it out the pool. Yeah. But he got eliminated <laughs> last night. Which one? Both of them have been eliminated oh, since then. Yeah. 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 But so last night was kind of boring. But what did give me pure black joy is, well, you know, they're filming in Palm Springs, mm-hmm. which, you know, is a very special place for me and, and Dennis, my husband. And um, so actually it's really funny on one of the one-on-one dates, um, they went up the tram that goes up Mount San San Jacinto, which is like the tallest peak in Southern California. And there's this um, like all glass tram that goes up and then you can like hike around the top of the mountain or whatever. Um, So funny story about that tram, like (laughs) both of us are sitting there like watching it, like are they about to get on the tram? So we decided to, to go up the mountain, see what was up there, hike around or whatever. What I didn't know was that this thing like goes up the sheer cliff mountain face or mm-hmm. whatever. It's all glass on all sides and spins. Oh, oh. Why? No, man. No, man. Thank you. Why? I don't know it's why. It's like six flags. It's not, I mean, it doesn't spin like fast, but it's okay. like fast, but like fast enough. No, no, it's not like a, no. But like fast enough that it's like, this is too fast and we are going up like, a 90 degree angle like mountain and then it's got I don't know what you call them but like when it goes from like one section of the wire to the other it like passes through the and it's like bouncing and swinging and swaying no ma'am no 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 so what I didn't realize this whole time as we're going up this is like Dennis was trying to find a time, like a, a, a convenient time to propose <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to me. And I'm holding onto this thing, like white knuckle, like, can I hold this thing? Why is it spinning? Why is it spinning? <laughs> and so he's thinking, all right, well, I'll do it when we're like up at the top of the mountain. <laughs> yeah. And then like, you know, looking for like a quiet spot or whatever and then like a school group of like 50 children <laughs> comes dropping through and I'm sitting there going like but we have to get back on that thing to go down <laughs> I can't enjoy it up here because I'm just thinking about going down to that thing um, 
And so I kind of ruined his proposal on the trip. <laughs> but that's where their date took place. And it was, <laughs> but, you know, we went home and he did it there. And now we're married and it's all good. <laughs> but so that's my pure black joy. And, you know, shout out to Michelle and I'm, I'm excited for the Minneapolis episodes. We'll see Yay! what happens. Yeah. So it's like the rest of the season happening in Minneapolis I or is it just going to be so. a few episodes? I, th- I don't, I don't know. Okay. But I'm I interested think, to hear. I think it'll be a significant portion, is mm. what it seems like. Maybe and maybe they'll go somewhere. Check f- it out then. Yeah. 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 Hmm. yeah, I'm curious about how they portray mm-hmm. Minneapolis. Yeah, and it looks like from the preview that the the basketball one, who's from here, they go on a one-on-one date. And then she goes on another one-on-one date to um, Betty Dangers. And they're like oh, on yeah. the Ferris wheel mm-hmm. and stuff. And I think that's the one... The one that I actually think she should be with. <laughs> <laughs> he just needs to get rid of, like, all of his jewelry. He was, I wonder if it's yeah. the boy that lives in my building. Some basketball player lives in my building. And oh. I've seen him before. He does wear a lot of jewelry. No, not the basketball. Like, a different one. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. I, was, I don't know if I No, he's got, like, a dangly, like, George Michael earring. Yeah, and it's like, honey, no. Oh, okay. You need to not do that. <laughs> <laughs> So that's my bachelor recap. <laughs> I look forward to more of them. Oh. I enjoy your, are your people, recap. Oh, people are enjoying this? Well, well, I do. We're people, Speaking yeah. from okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> right now, yes. Okay, good. Good, 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 good. good, good. <laughs> I do have a little pure black joy. Okay. Um, Hit us. So I have been listening to some podcasts because I won't even say how I got into it, but got, I got really interested in like, what is the history of Islam in West Africa? Um, probably because I've read some books that referenced like enslaved folks who were Muslim, who came over here to the Americas, who were, you know, enslaved. Um, and it just doesn't get talked about that much. Mm. And I came across this amazing black Muslim scholar named Mustafa Briggs, who... Um, is wrote a book not that long ago called uh, Beyond Bilal um, about the history of Islam in West Africa and listening to his podcast to um, podcasts that have had him as a guest has just like sent me down like a research rabbit hole. He like just speaks really uh, brilliantly and in an interesting way about the history um, of how Islam first spread, like through, um, it seems like very like peacefully. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, of course, because we live in the U.S., there's like a certain Islamophobia and like Orientalism that happens. Sure. And there's all this craze about jihads and, you know, holy wars and all of that. And that's like just not <laughs> <laughs> just not true. I mean, true in some places. Sure. Like different religions have had wars at different times across the world is what it is. But he talks about how it spread peacefully through trade and um, being a nerd. I was really intrigued <laughs> by how <laughs> it was a lot of um, Muslim scholars who sent up like, who uh, set up places, major centers of learning of, of scholarship of, um, and traveling all over the place to bring back books too. He mm. also emphasized that like, it wasn't Muslim scholars going elsewhere to learn. It was like them getting books and like bringing it back to West Africa, like people from 
the Arabic world would come to West Africa to study because they had some of the best teachers and, and scholars. And it was just like really fascinating to to listen to him. And um, I've also like something that I, I think, again, because like the U.S. Islamophobia and stuff, we often have a very uh, Arab view of Islam. And just learning about like how populations of Muslims in West Af- Africa have like maintain a lot of their African culture and African like yeah everything from way of lifestyle of dress like yeah so it was just Hmm. Mustafa Briggs okay awesome awesome and of course talks about like you know the racism that that can happen within um within his religion and that he's encountered and it was just really fascinating to me to go down (laughs) go down this rabbit hole of learning about um yeah learning about black muslims and i i can't i haven't learned enough to be able to quote it exactly but there was also some involvement in like resisting the slave trade specifically by these centers that um Muslim scholars had these schools, like a lot of them being uh, anti anti colonial in their in their view. Um, so yeah, it was mm. just really interesting, and I feel like gave me a new take on you know our ancestral heritage, our ancestral history, and uh, eventually I want to get more into okay, what about those that were taken and enslaved, and how mm. you know. How did that impact what they experienced or how they, you know, experienced what happened here in the U.S.? So, yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's been my black joy. If you haven't, you should read the slave narrative by Equiano because Mm. he talks a lot about trying to maintain his Muslim identity when he was brought here as a slave and then being forced to like change his name and losing a lot of his culture is mm. really, really um, interesting because I feel like it, a lot of the scholars of the religion of black people in the Americas have not focused on Islam, right? Like we yeah. get a lot of yeah. other things, we get a lot of animism and we certainly talk a lot about how that ends up showing up in Christian context. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that what you're describing sounds super interesting, especially the the idea of how those educational institutions may have been like buttressing folks against the slave trade. I would I would mm-hmm. love to hear more about that. Professor Griggs, if you are Briggs, yeah. if you're listening. Oh, that would be amazing. Yeah, actually. Be <laughs> to bring him on the show. So I found the name of the podcast I was listening to that gets into this extensively is called Boys in the Cave. Okay. Um, and there's an episode, episode 82 called Islam in West Africa, Racism and Arabization of Islam. There's also, because I was so intrigued by what he was saying, I listened to more than one podcast when he was a guest. There was a podcast called The Malcolm Effect, um, episode number 49, Is Islam an Anti-Black Religion? Featuring Mustafa Briggs. And he kind of like dispels that. Because honestly, that was something that I had heard too, which had me, I guess, not look further, if I'm being honest, that like there's been ideas perpetuated that like Islam is anti-Black for... I mean, from all kinds of sources, for all different kinds of reasons. So it was it was cool to hear him talk about that dynamic and like how 
like people actually view Islam, like Africans who are practicing it in the diaspora mm. and on the continent. So, well, send me the links to those shows, and I'll put them in the show notes. Yes, so gladly. Everyone, so everyone can listen. <laughs> but I think that's going to bring us to the end of our show today, and we have an announcement to make. We do. I think this is going to be our last show for a while. What it is? <laughs> no, we are, we will you know continue to have content of of some sort um, throughout the the holiday season. But honey, Sagittarius season is coming up, and Paige and I need to go celebrate. Yes, and rest. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We will be in our full power in our full glory. Yeah, yeah. There are birthday festivities <laughs> to be had. Mm-hmm. There are holiday plates to be eaten. Yes, um, all of that. Beans, greens, potatoes, tomatoes, plants, uh-huh. rants. You name it. Yes. You name it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but next. Next episode, two weeks from today, we will have a wonderful interview um, with local fashion designers, Tim and Tom, and we will get into fashion and opera and the relationship between the two, a little bit of tea about Tim Gunn, (laughs) (laughs) they're on Project Runway, (laughs) Um, and then in December... Not sure what we're gonna do yet. We'll have something for you, but it some won't. Treats. We'll have mm-hmm. some treats, but we are gonna take the month to relax and rest and rejuvenate. Celebrate Hashtag Kwanzaa. yes, yes. Hashtag nap ministry. <laughs> <laughs> Bring in 2022 properly, uh-huh. and we will be back rested and rejuvenated in January. Um, so, I mean. This year has been really cool and amazing mm-hmm. and so awesome. And, you know, starting this with the two of you and Aww. having all of you out there listening to our mess <laughs> <laughs> has been just such a blessing. It's just been so fun. And I'm excited to see what we do in 2022. I think it's going to be dope. So I'm excited, too. This Maybe. has been like a, a bright spot on my on my year. And... Yeah, I'm just like proud of yeah. all that we've done this yeah. year with this podcast specifically with y'all. I yeah, yeah. Oh, I had the idea of like a highlights episode. Oh, no. like, oh, like what have been idea. our favorite I'll moments? Oh, I've got a couple. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Okay, that. Yeah. that it's gonna take some you editing. Some <laughs> <laughs> oh my bad. I mean, I mean uh... no, 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 no. That's fine. That's fine. That's great. No, that's a great idea. I love it. <laughs> no, no, that's a no, that's a very good idea. <laughs> that is a good idea. <laughs> and it is, I guess, technically what I get paid to do. So that's fine. <laughs> that's fine. I mean, or we could not. We cannot. <laughs> Just as long as it's not around my birthday because I am taking my birthday off. Of course, <laughs> as you should. Yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, but it's it's been really fun and we just want to thank all of you out there for, for joining us and you know what would be another wonderful holiday treat? If we had more people joining us and people will, you know, 
one of the the wonderful things you could do for us for the season if 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 you wanted to get us a gift, not that you have to. You know, <laughs> if you insist. If you insist is to leave us a five star review, leave some leave some words, especially on Apple Podcasts. It'll uh, you know help us get the word out. Five stars. Five. Five. Cinco. Yes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Five. <laughs> no less. No less. I don't think you can put more. If you could. I mean, feel free. If you can hack Apple know. and give us six stars, I will take it. But that doesn't mean three and three. No. Yeah. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, subscribe um, on Apple, Spotify. Follow us on Spotify. There's this new bell situation that you can use yeah, to follow podcasts on Spotify. So do that. Um, or wherever you listen to find podcasts. And of course, share us with your friends. And so, you know, whatever you celebrate this season, or if you're just taking time to just rest and relax and get ready for whatever, whatever is coming our way in 2022. Who knows, child? In the USA's <laughs> Pluto return. February second, twenty twenty two, in the second house. Anything. I mean, I'm just saying. So, um, (laughs) rest, get your strength up, (laughs) (laughs) and we just wish you a joyous, happy, wonderful holiday. And I hope you get to spend it with someone you love, even if that is just yourself. Go out there and love yourself. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So, we'll see you in twenty twenty two. Bye, everybody. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bye.